Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into hour two. We do so as we do every Monday with Brandon J. Weikert. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and the upcoming book out a little bit later this year, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. You can uh, follow his writings where he's a columnist at the Asia Times, American Greatness, and other outlets. Uh, Brandon, I... um, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Vladimir Putin's big speech today, uh, the takeaways from that. Then I want to get into a few domestic uh, policy issues as well. But let me also acknowledge to the audience that uh, they who call in or write me with questions for you, you never know what's going to happen. We had a listener call in and write a question on supply chain issues in the military and my gosh, it became a column for you. So <laughs> you never know. You never know where your next idea is coming from, right? and receptive to new inputs and good things will happen exactly exactly i love it no closed questions in an open society someone needs to tell the left that i guess they don't want an open society you want to no yeah bookmark that bookmark that because i just did yeah Yeah. we'll come back to that issue we'll come back to that one let's talk about putin let's talk about vladimir putin uh you um You said something interesting because there's an article there. There is wisdom in the parade today. Uh, Someone had Mark McKinnon had mentioned with fewer soldiers and tanks and a canceled Mm -hmm. Air Force display. Russia's Victory Day parade inadvertently showed off a country shrunk in power to which you said, yeah, but this is our concern, dude. Uh, Right. He has cyberspace and nukes. Right. Right. Talk, talk about right. so, uh, what happens when you corner a caged animal. Go ahead, sir. That's right. That's right. And and um, you know the the parade that he put on today was very telling. First of all, he's got units waving the ha- the hammer and sickle, right? Uh, and like it was the old bad old Soviet days. Uh, then he's out there uh, and he's overlooking this military formation, and it's it looks pretty tiny compared to previous years. Yeah, where could they um, be? Right. And then he did something interesting. You know, first of all, he called all of us Nazis, in case you didn't notice. Uh, You know, we're all Nazis to him. Um, At least our governments are. uh, And and, uh, certainly he views Ukraine that way. Interestingly, um, he didn't or he neglected to uh, declare a state of emergency uh, that would have been necessary under Russian law to then bring the remaining Russian reserves to the battle. So that indicates to me that while I, as you know, have been very concerned about nuclear escalation, at least for now, it seems like he is content to keep this conflict in sort of a low-grade counterinsurgency, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, especially now that the fighting has shifted to more, what should be at least for him, fortuitous ground uh, in uh, the eastern portion of Ukraine and possibly the southern portion of Ukraine. And so there, the good news, I think, is we are kind of, you know, so far not escalating. The concern I had up until about a day or two ago was this guy was going to go nuclear at any moment, and he still may. Um, and if his war effort in the friendlier eastern portion of the country or even in the mixed portion, southern portion of the country, does not go according to his plan to with conventional forces, then we will again be at the risk of escalating with nuclear or cyber or space, 
you know, born attacks or all of the above. Um, and this is something that we are not well prepared for even today. Uh, we have no viable space-based missile defense systems. Our satellites are woefully vulnerable. Uh, and our cyber defenses, you know, we've got them, but, but uh, we're always at risk of, of really catastrophic failure in the cyber defense domain. And so uh, far more so than many other domains that we operate in. And so, um, you know, the concern that I have is that, he, yes, for now it seems like he's not going to escalate, but the longer that this war drags on, and if he continues to have sort of that, you know, lacking success or decisive victory that he's seeking, clearly, he will at that point, I think, escalate. And, and I still don't think Washington and Brussels and London are really paying attention to the signals here. I don't think they have a real strategy underlying the, the vital support we're lending to Ukraine. And I'm all for supporting Ukraine, but I wish that we would have some kind of tangible strategic end goal other than just degrade the Russian military. Russian military can be rebuilt, after all. Furthermore, uh, you know, the Russian economy has rebounded now. So that all those financial sanctions we were imposing, for the most part, because Russia is an energy superpower, for the most part now, they have recovered from the economic losses that they suffered uh, at the beginning of this war. So these are things that we need to be considering because Putin is clearly dug in for the long haul in terms of fighting at least for eastern Ukraine. You know what I want to kind of say to you, Brandon? I want to say thank you for taking this seriously. You know, it seems to me, I, what's my math? This, this, this war started, the, Ukrainian, the invasion of, of Ukraine started about, what, two and a half months ago, give or take? I think yeah, about I'm, 11 weeks ago. Yeah, okay. And this was the biggest deal in the world to America. Uh, Americans could not virtue signal enough. The president of the United States opened his State of the Union and dedicated about 25 percent to 30 percent of his speech to it, trying to rally Americans on behalf of Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky was giving a speech to a joint session of Congress. I mean, you just couldn't go any. People were, gosh, you probably knew people like this. I did. I knew people. Lying, calling me the next, you know, in the morning and saying I couldn't sleep last night. I'm so distraught over what's happening in Ukraine. And yet me talking to you about it today almost sounds a little trite and a little yesterday. (laughs) Not because of you and not because of me, but because we kind of got the memo and thought this was, in fact, a big deal. And now it just seems like the spotlight is everywhere but here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's because I don't know what to say Russia, about it exactly, except that leadership. Well, I think the, I, I yeah, think the bottom line is I think the bottom line is that while Ukraine has really done a bang up job of rolling back Russia, they've done it in areas where they should have been able to roll back Russia, such as in Kiev, the capital. Um, now the real test of Ukraine is going to come in the form of whether they can prevent Russia from building a land bridge from their eastern portion of Ukraine through southern Ukraine into Transnistria, which is the Russian-speaking enclave of Moldova. Uh, can the Ukrainian forces ultimately do that which their kind of crazy foreign minister, Kuleba, has been advocating for since a year ago uh, when he got a law passed saying as much that the Ukrainians were not just going to stop Russia from advancing in Ukraine, but they were going to actually kick them out of eastern Ukraine, the Russian-speaking enclave in, in, in eastern Ukraine, Donbass. Uh, and uh, and I'm forgetting the other one, um, the other major area. But the, the, the point is, is that 
I think one of the reasons why the media is moving on and sort of distracting people is because while the Ukrainians continue to do a really good job of harrying the Russians, the Russians are not out of the fight. The Russians are being drained. The Russians are certainly having to make new calculations. But the Russians have not been defeated yet. And as we've seen throughout every modern war Russia's been involved in, they usually can hold out, even if they lose at the end, they usually can hold out for a while, and they usually can impose a lot of costs on their enemy. And so rather than 11 weeks being sort of the end or the beginning of the end, I think we're at the end of the beginning of yeah. this Russian invasion yeah. of Ukraine. And I think the media knows it, and I think our corporate media is so invested in Ukraine winning lock, stock, and barrel that the longer this war goes on, the more they're going to try to distract the American public away from the fact that, hey, look, the war's still going on, and yeah, Ukraine's fighting, but they're not winning necessarily. Well, I had always thought, and you and I talked a lot about this, I had always thought that the way the president was talking about it, and people have to remember that you know he was all over the map on what we were doing and what we weren't doing, what we were going to do and what we weren't going to do, but each time he was increasing the volume and the temper, uh, the temperature, if you will. And I, I was here, as I think you were with me, saying, you know, careful, our reality is not going to meet this rhetoric, and people are going to be right. in for a lot of disappointment. I think they just kind of gave up and went home, uh, Americans yeah. did by and large on this, because it's pushed up against, I guess, what we can mark as basically a 12-week attention span in this country before yep. the media likes to get up and move us on to the next crisis. Brandon, I got to take a break, but I want to yep. I want to come back with this. Uh, I'll just uh, plant this with you. A lot of people weren't, aren't alive for a lot of world crises. 9-11 is probably the last big one. And after 9-11, this country did everything in its power to change how we defended ourselves and how we were going to deal with terrorism. We created a new department. We did a lot. We did. We futzed yeah. around with the FBI and DOJ and the CIA. Um, you're talking about space. Are we doing anything after this? Are, are we doing? Okay. Yeah, all right. I'm Seth. He's Brandon. We'll be right back. For those of you looking for a really remarkable and unique investment opportunity with a great return for investors, I want you to check out my friends at YReFi. They are my friends. I've spent a lot of time with them. And as I say, it's a really great investment. I'm talking about a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors in a collateralized and secure portfolio. YReFi helps people who are doing their best to dig out of debt the right way doing the right thing, paying off their debts, doing so with dignity, even getting their FICO scores fixed along the way. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by really good people who are doing very well by helping others. And you can too. What more can I tell you about how much I believe in this product, this investment product? Check them out yourself. Go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y, Com or give them a call at 855-316-3087. It's a local company. You can visit them. You won't get any kind of a sales pitch. They're just delighted to tell you about what it is that they do. And if you want to get involved, you will be doing what they do too, helping people that others won't and earning money along the way. 
kind of makes you feel good, doesn't it? Go to investyrefi.com or call 855-316-3087. Brandon Weikert is our guest. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, his upcoming book, Shadow, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Brandon, so I don't know if anything more monumental and world-shaking has happened between 9-11 and the invasion of Ukraine. Maybe, maybe, but, but, but we, um, we, 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 we certainly knew how to take 9-11 seriously in its aftermath. And for all the talk of Joe Biden's um, about the invasion of Ukraine and all the virtue signaling and all the Ukrainian flags and joint session speech, are, are we doing anything other than jaw jaw at this point? Are we are we getting serious about space? Are we getting serious about alternative uh, uh, ways to fight these kinds of kinetic wars? You tell me. No, we are still fighting with 20th century ideas and um, you know modalities. Uh, you know the, the the easiest thing that the, the best thing we should be doing. Uh, because we are really living in an age where deterrence, defensive deterrence, is dead, and we're now moving into a period of compellence because of the asymmetry of forces, the great imbalance that exists. Do that for me. Our- I, I, I don't know that that yeah. the, that variance. Deterrence, okay, I know. Compe- and what was the other word? Yeah. So, so compellence. Yeah. So talk to me about that. That's neat. Go so that's, do, do that. That's, that's more of an offensive. Uh, it's the opposite of deterrence. It's more offensive. Basically, where you, uh, you know, you make a move so that your enemy has to back off or fight. Okay. And uh, deterrence is kind of more like an eye for an eye. Like if you hit me, right. I'm going to hit you back. Right. Compellence is all about, you know, you're, you're going in to take Ukraine, and everybody better get out of the way, otherwise they're going to get sliced and diced. And uh, you know, it's sort of like a challenge. Uh, and we're we're rapidly moving, I fear, into a period of compellence because of that imbalance that exists. You have Russia and China and North Korea and Iran, our enemies, are investing heavily in these unconventional forms of warfare so as to keep America's conventional military off balance and unable to bring its full force to bear. Um, our military has obviously overwhelming conventional firepower, overwhelming conventional capabilities, but when matched against Russia or China... Russia and China have unconventional warfare capabilities, and they're using them quite effectively. Uh, and so when we talk about what's the easiest thing we could be doing, a space-based missile defense system, because ultimately the big threat remains nuclear weapons being popped off like firecrackers on a 4th of July celebration. And so what we need to be doing is recognizing that, A, the nuclear genie has either been or is about to be let out of its bottle in the form of proliferation to rogue regimes like Iran and North Korea, uh, and, and it might even be let out of its bottle in the form of a potential nuclear war over Ukraine or Taiwan. And so what we need to be doing is we need to focus on building those space-based capabilities to deflect incoming nuclear missiles as they enter through space on their way down to the United States. We need to basically, instead of mutual assured destruction, what Reagan used to talk about, Ronald Reagan used to talk about, was mutually assured survival. Uh-huh. So we would have the capability to defend ourselves holistically from a nuclear threat, which would render nukes obsolete 
and would then give us the advantage because as we're shooting down enemy nuclear weapons or have that capability, we then also have our nuclear arsenal, which remains mostly intact. And therefore, we have all of the advantages and we dictate terms. But that's what we need to be focused on as a country. That needs to be our Apollo program. That needs to be our generation's Manhattan project. And we're not doing it. And every day that we waste is another day that this country is left so dangerously exposed. It is absolute malpractice from both political parties that we have talked about this for 40 years and we've done almost nothing to bring a space-based missile defense system into reality. We could get this done in about a year and a half. That's my understanding, too. I kind of had two theses I'd run by you as to why we have dragged our feet on it. You know, first we, we condemned it uh, in the 80s when Ronald Reagan proposed right. it. And I think we condemned it, not we, but I think the Democrats condemned it for two reasons. Uh, one, my sense is he had outmaneuvered the Democrats on a humanitarian policy, this great warmonger uh, who had an itchy trigger finger cowboy, you know, right. all that had outmaneuvered them on the more humane policy. One, two, um, there was there was this 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 concern that it would upset the Soviet Union. And so you had Democrats like Ted Kennedy and John Kerry who were kind of reading off the Soviet Union's talking points in opposition to Ronald Reagan. Um, that That's my sense today. I don't know that either of those abide anymore, and it seems obviously it's about it's 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 obviously about will, not ability. But I don't understand what the slow tracking of it is. I don't understand the slow walk on it. I just don't. Well, it's it, it has to do with the the. I mean, this in my book, Winning Space. There are two types of people who dominate U.S. space policy: the utopians who want no human activity really in space, lest it lead to. Uh, unwanted capitalist competition in the private sector and unwanted uh, space warfare. And so they'd rather us almost do nothing in space except to maybe cooperate, uh, you know, with other rival powers like China, which, of course, just be one big tech transfer. They don't see it that way. The other group are the naysayers. These are engineers and technicians who are brilliant, but they are going to sit and tell you how something can't be done. And then, of course, China or Russia beat us to the punch because it can be done. Yeah. But those are the two types of people who dominate. And so the utopians are sitting around saying, we can't do it because it could spark an unwanted arms race. It could trigger the very conflict that we're seeking to avoid. But of course, I'm looking around going, well, Russia and China know this is what we're saying, and they're laughing, and they're arming up because they know this is a vulnerability that we're not going to plug, and it's we're making ourselves open to this kind of attack, and they're happy to exploit that. Uh, or at least to say they're going to exploit that, to, to cow us from taking the necessary action, whatever it may be, against their regime. And so we've got to, we've got to divorce ourselves from these people. And the problem is there's a deep state. There's an administrative state. Hold it right there. Let, yeah, let me pause it on that deep us. state. Yeah, let me pause it on that deep state. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. By the way, his website, The Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. Brandon, I want to do a little domestic stuff with you in a few moments. But first, you are about to say the deep state is still heavily operational in Washington, D.C., particularly when it comes to defense matters. People may not understand that defense and foreign policy is really where the deep state might be most 
shall I use the word Absolutely. entitled? I think people feel entitled in those institutions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and with good reason, because the executive branch, the president, the branch of the government the president manages, that is almost initially, from the beginning of the Constitution, it was always enshrined that foreign affairs and military affairs were the purview of the executive branch. I mean, the Congress had the right to declare war and the power of the purse to fund those conflicts, but ultimately the day-to-day stuff was going to be managed and controlled by the president and his chosen people, um, you know, in, in those, those branches over, over the, or in those departments. In Over the years, it's become this sort of opaque, insular, you know, entity, a government within a government. Um, and it isn't just sort of the Defense Department, it's at NASA, it's at the FBI, it's at, you know, it's this sort of just interlocking bureaucracy um, where the managers and the people running the, you know, the spaceless bureaucrats are the people who have a lot of power, more power than they probably should, because ever since really Woodrow Wilson, we've been ceding more and more authority out of, you know, the thought of convenience to these administrators to the point now that after a century of it, they are like mini tyrants, and uh, you know they're the reason why your ammunition costs so much. If you're a gun owner, because the EPA has been backdooring all these regulations on lead for environmental reasons, but also to sort of evade congressional uh, approval on gun control laws, um, enacting those. And so it's the same thing in space, where you have a group of people, academics, and even those in uniform, who are all put into their positions of power because they all share a similar ideology. And that ideology is not about making America great or maximizing America's power or about defending America or about expanding the sphere of liberty for individual Americans. That is all about empowering the bureaucracy to perpetuate the bureaucracy to enact a very left-wing, centralist, if dare I say socialist, quasi-socialist agenda, which is inimical to America, which is why in space we haven't been to the moon in 50 years. That's right. It's why China's probably going to get there before we do. That's it's right. why China's probably going to get to Mars in the next 10 years before we do, unless Elon Musk is left alone by those government bureaucrats and is able to get it done on his own. But, I mean, this is, this is where we are, and, and, and space is another part of, of, of greatness, of prestige, that an opportunity that the bureaucrats are trying to kill with their ridiculous ideas and their ridiculous exertions of bureaucratic power, which are completely capricious and totally unwarranted. How strong do you think? You know, how strong do you think the leftist pull and instinct is to truly make America smaller on the world stage because happened. they don't like it? Yeah, I, you, you caught some of this with Obama there. in the first year. But they've but taken it seriously. The crazy thing is, it's not even that they, they don't like America. It's that they don't like what America currently is. They want to remake America sure. into what they think it should be. Yeah. And what it should be is not the dominant power, because dominance is so heteronormative. They want to make America into this sort of co- you know, cooperative, it's just a cog in a larger... Join the EU. They want us to join the EU. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, and they would love it if we were subservient to Brussels, of yeah. course. Uh, you know, they would love it if we handed over nuclear weapons control, our arsenal, to the U.N. I mean, this is, this is where the, the thinking is. This is a globalist, 
you know, insane postulation. John they Kerry said no, it. I mean, I mean, they they do yeah. say it from time to time. They get they caught do. when the polling isn't they there. Do. But when John Kerry said yep. we have to pass international tests before we can act, I mean, they're telling right. us, right? Well, just remember, look at all the times that they want to use international law instead of American law yeah, that's for these important Supreme Court decisions. Hold yeah, that thought. Uh, let's get, let, let, that's a good segue to a little something about the Supreme Court I wanted to ask you about as well. Let me take a quick break here with Brandon J. Weikert. We'll come back on that point as I put in a word for balance of nature, their fruits and veggies. One daily dose on just the fruit side gives you everything from cherries and lemons and raspberries and oranges and papaya and grapes and more. 16 different fruits, 15 different veggies and their fruits and veggies. One daily dose is all you need. You take it once a day and you are chock full of whole food nutrition that is 100% natural to keep your energy and your immunity high. And body repair too, I'm telling you. Someone who exercises quite routinely and um, according to some extremely, I credit balance of nature with keeping me going. Balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He's the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, his upcoming book coming out a little bit later this fall, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. He's a columnist at many outlets, including the Asia Times and America Greatness. Brandon, uh, you had uh, you had just brought up uh, an, an interesting an interesting statement in the context of all we were talking on foreign and international affairs. Supreme Court, uh, they're in the news today in a way that uh, and have been for a week. In a way, I don't ever remember seeing. I have never seen what's taking place like this. And you know, I'm I'm not the oldest guy in the room, but I'll tell you this: this is a new moment. Yeah. So basically. Um the, the the leak, and again, this, we don't even know if this was the majority opinion, you know, for this case that they were talking about having a decision by June. Uh, but in the last month, uh, as some of your audience may know, there was a very controversial leak of a potential Supreme Court opinion written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, one of the most conservative and I think probably one of the most brilliant men on the bench right now. Uh, in which he basically wrote the the opinion that they were going to possibly or they should overturn Roe v. Wade because it's bad case law. And um, that was leaked prematurely to the press. First time in 200 years this has ever happened in the history of the Supreme Court. A, a decision was leaked or opinion was leaked before it was actually officially made. Uh, and that has set up for a series of protests and, and basically riot-like conditions, or should I say, as MSNBC says, mostly peaceful, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, protests that have been targeted at the Supreme Court justices' houses uh, where their families live, where they live, and it got so heated and so bad, particularly for Brett Kavanaugh, who is really a target, an extreme target of the left's ire, uh, hatred. Uh, they were forced, the families of the Supreme Court, to flee their homes in the cover of darkness by security services and are now staying at some undisclosed location, uh, hiding out as if, you know, it's 9-11 and, you know, they're having to hide from al-Qaeda. Um, and, and there doesn't appear to be any abatement in the way the, the, the pro-abortion, anti-life uh, rioters are, are, are 
going about their business. They're not going to stop until they get an overturning of the Alito opinion, which is not going to happen. Alito is like the worst person to try to intimidate. So, you know, the left are nuts for doing this. They have a better chance doing this than Roberts. Uh, but this was an Alito opinion. And he guns, I suspect. The opinion will be out in the next few weeks, officially, and we'll see if it was a majority opinion or if it was a dissenting opinion. But the fact of the matter is, this is just another example of not just the hypocrisy, because everybody talks about the hypocrisy of the West, but the danger of allowing the hypocrisy to become codified as normal behavior. Because when Republicans protest, and when a handful of Republicans riot, as they did on January 6th, or you know, right-leaning people, it's suddenly an insurrection. But when the left-wingers spend an entire summer, as they did in 2020, burning down cities, targeting city halls in Portland, targeting, you know, uh, state court, Supreme Court houses, uh, as Antifa did throughout the 2020 uh, protest cycle, uh, they're considered mostly peaceful. When the right-wing does it, we are enemies of the state. And yet again, you have that mentality on display now where the, the left is organizing officially to basically overturn a legitimate democratic function that is the Supreme Court. And by the way, they're talking seriously in Democrat Party circles, not just an activist wing, but in actual Senate and House uh, conversations of the Democrats about trying to figure out if they can pass the Supreme Court like Franklin D. Roosevelt wanted to do, which makes a complete mockery of the entire institution of the Supreme Court and basically shows you just how truly committed to quote-unquote democracy the Democratic Party is, which is to say not that committed at all. Everything about how this unfolded was a breach of a democratic norm, the unprecedented yes. leaking of a draft opinion. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. The the lack of denunciation of that, by the way, Joe yes. Biden issued a press statement immediately thereafter, and all it was about was the sanctity of Roe v. Wade. It had nothing to do with protecting well, the institution MAGA. of the Supreme he, Court. Go ahead. And he called the MAGA people. He said we were the greatest extremist group he's ever seen in the last fifty years in American politics. So he's at the same time not denouncing this horrible behavior. Right. Uh, whoever the leaker is. He's then pivoting and saying that the right, the right in this country, the Republicans are yep. the extremists. Yes. Well, we're the ones saying we should be preserving the institutional integrity of at least one of the three branches in this country's federal government. I think it's extremely telling that people on the left associate democracy with this sort of emotional how they feel, anything that supports what and, they and, believe. And, yeah, well, that's right. It's outcome-based. It's, it, it's outcome-based on the policy desiderata. Any end just any, any means will justify that end. And any political scientist who's not a liberal, few there are, at least those at Hillsdale, will tell you what I'm about to say, which is that democracy isn't just about outcome-based uh, politics. It's about institutions. It's about the institutional memory. And what you're doing right now is you're crapping, forgive my language, all over the institutional memory just because 
you don't like the potential outcome. Again, potential outcome. We don't know if this is the majority opinion. Right, right. It's the potential outcome, and, and, it's, and, it, and it's for political purposes. Because what they're trying to do is not only prevent Roe from being overturned, but the left is desperate to have an issue to fight about in the 2022 midterms, which they are right now expected to lose. I think they blew it. I got to tell you, I, you know, I got to tell you early on, I, I, I had the nervousness that others would have had about this sort of thing. But I think they took it too far and they've turned people against them already. I think they are oh, well, melding their hand of being of being crazy. They're going to lose I, 2022. I think they, they are cheat, looking crazy. They're, they're looking crazy. Yeah. Jen Psaki, the press secretary, couldn't ah. even muster the statement, don't protest at Supreme Court justices' homes. She was asked about this last week. She, she said something incredible. Quote, I don't have an official U.S. government position on where people protest, close quote. She thinks she's being right. cute. I, right. She thinks she's course, being cute. Well, and remember, this is the same party that for four years was doxing Trump administration officials. Yes. Maxine Waters going out there telling people, you find the Trump people, the officials in the Washington, D.C. restaurants with their families, and you get in their face. Mitch McConnell had to, be, had to flee a Mexican restaurant in D.C. because he was harassed so badly. I mean, we can go down the litany, go down the litany of every Trump official who was dehumanized, not because they were anti-democratic, but because they were simply on the wrong side of the Democratic Just because party. they were Republican, yeah. They chased Kirsten Sinema yeah. through the bathroom right. on Capitol Hill, a fellow Democrat, right. because she wasn't going to vote for That's that right. boondoggle that was built back better. These people are dangerous. They are gonna, they're going to hurt someone. Um, we have a short segment in our last segment coming up, and I wonder if you might take uh, that time, if you can stay with us, Brandon, to kind of talk about the use of the word Nazi by Vladimir Putin. Yeah. When we come back, Brandon Weikert will take us out. We'll be right back. Brandon J. Weikert has been our guest delightfully. He does this with us every Monday in our second hour. We so appreciate you, Brandon. Brandon, you can't escape the use of the word Nazi these days. It, it had been gone for the most part with, the, with a small little window of exception between 1976 and 1978 because of Skokie. But between 1945, I've never heard the word used so much, whether it's from yeah. the left or whether it's from Vladimir Putin. Has it become, what, a shibboleth, a kind of a catchphrase that it will allow you then to do anything you want because you have made someone the most yeah. evil thing in the world? Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, look, I think Vladimir Putin is just taking his cues from the American left yeah. when he calls someone a Nazi that allows you to dehumanize and destroy them. Uh, you know, his forces are going much farther than that, obviously, with the raping and pillaging. But the bottom line is that he's doing rhetorically exactly with that which the American left does to Republicans, which is to say, anyone I don't like is a Nazi, and that gives me free reign to do whatever I want. And in fact, in the case of Vladimir Putin, he's actually a fascist. Like, if you look at the Dugan, Alexander Dugan mentality, if you look at the, the ideology of neo-Eurasianism, and that which Putin has been espousing for years, particularly in the speech this morning at the so-called Victory Parade in Moscow, um, if you look at that, and you listen to it, that is actually a fascistic uh, uh, speech and a fascistic ideology that he's pre preaching. So the, the real Nazi really is Vladimir Putin, if we're going to go and call anybody a Nazi. Uh, but, you know, the, you know he's not going to stop because it's how he dehumanizes Ukraine. It's how he gets his people to rally around him. And they are, by the way. That's the scary thing. They're rallying around Putin, even though the Russian people don't really like Putin. They are rallying as never before. 
And so that is where the risk of escalation, and that is why I tell uh, people, do not think this is going to be a quick war, because Putin is clearly hunkering down. And by saying, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi, anybody who opposes me in the West is a Nazi, that's telling you he's going to go as long as he can until he gets some semblance of a victory, and even then he might not stop, because he is committed to this. And I think part of him really does believe we're all fascists, when in fact he's the fascist. Just like the American left. It's all projection. It, it is all projection. That's well said, Brandon. I just had a thought. I don't think it'll happen, but maybe an enterprising teacher in earshot might assign their 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 students, who I'm sure are mostly swallowing the liberal creed on most things, if he, might assi- he or she might assign their students a paper on how the Ukrainians are not Nazis, why Vladimir Putin yeah. is wrong, and then maybe from that we could use it as a teachable moment to explain yeah. to the rest of the world of America right, why the Republicans aren't either. Brandon J. Weikert, bless you, sir. Thank you for everything. Thank you. God bless. Yep. Until next week, Godspeed. I'm Seth Liebson. Don't go away. We will be right back.